0: Happy Friday, Greenlight Pod. I'm your host, Chris Long. This is one that doesn't need a lot of introduction. I got Steve Kerr. If you don't know who Steve Kerr is, you don't do sports or you don't do championships. He's won plenty of them, eight of them to be exact, in the NBA as a player and a coach. Uh, And there's a little plot twist here when it comes to myself and Steve. We are linked forever after a, a jet ski ride in the 90s. We'll get to that and more. So I just want to hit some heavy stuff before we get to Steve Kerr. I know I I know I touched on this last pod, you might have to sit through it two pods in a row. It's been a weird week to talk about sports. I'm excited to have Steve on, and we'll we'll certainly hit the heavy stuff as well. On the tail end, maybe if we get to it, he's really outspoken and and is not afraid to, to grapple with subjects like equality or police brutality. The George Floyd thing has 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 been tough. The the imagery, the video, the reality that, you know. Those police officers, not just the one who committed the heinous act of murdering George Floyd in, in broad daylight, is sitting at his house right now. I, I assume he's going to be charged relatively soon, but that guy should be in handcuffs already. Uh, and it's been a hard week. And all those, those guys that stood by and allowed that to happen in uniform should be ashamed of themselves and they should be charged with those crimes. Um, this has been a tough week. Uh, the band aid just keeps getting ripped off. The band aid needs to be ripped off again. Let me reiterate, this is nothing new. This is just we have cell phones now. And when you look at an officer like the guy who, who killed George Floyd, um, you look back at his track record the last 10, 12 years, he's done a number of questionable, awful things, it seems, um, and has not been reprimanded very much. And I think that we see this often when it comes to these cases where you know an officer has not answered if we're believing the bad Apple thing those bad apples are not being picked they're not being plucked and uh eventually it leads to this and we say oh shit why didn't we see this coming because there's no accountability and i think that's why people have trouble trusting the police as as an institution um so this band-aid needs to be ripped off not only do i want to see as a citizen of this country you know the good cops that we keep hearing about who i know a few of them speak out on this stuff. Uh, but we need athletes to talk about this stuff. We need white voices. We need, we need people to stand um, together right now and, and, and be on the same team on this thing and, and just call it what it is. And in sports, for whatever reason, there aren't a ton of white athletes who feel comfortable doing that. Now, I've played with a number of guys that I've talked about this stuff with at lunch tables in, in the cafeteria or at the practice field. The locker room in, an NFL, in, in the NFL is, is a sacred place. And there's some wonderful conversations that elicit real growth that go on between players of different backgrounds. But a lot of times, you know, I found myself late in my career talking to other white players and they say, yeah, how do you feel comfortable doing what you do? It seems like a minefield. It's tough. And it is. I mean, it's, it's a tough, tough task to, to speak on this stuff. But again, you know, lean on a teammate, lean on a friend that, that knows what it feels like to not look like us uh, and get some guidance on maybe, you know, how you might be of assistance. I think that eventually we're going to see more, more and more players talk about it, but it's been disappointing to see a lack of white players weigh in on this stuff. And um, Shannon Sharp hit it this week. We need bigger voices. Um, you know, he mentioned me in, in in his monologue, which I thought he did did a great job as he usually does in talking about these tougher subjects. And I was very Humbled that he would he would mention me, but again, I don't deserve a medal for pointing out the obvious that something as obvious as Black Lives Matter being controversial. We have a problem in our country when 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 that's a controversial ha- hashtag. We have we have a problem when we have to actually fight for equality or or ask that you know officers of law are, are held accountable for their crimes. It doesn't mean it's an awful place to live. It doesn't mean you know that doesn't mean I'm ashamed to be white. You know the fact that I have privilege or that you know my life's pretty good doesn't reflect poorly on the person I am. We just need more white people talking about it, and that includes athletes. and Shannon Sharp brought that up. Uh, he talked about the big names, the quarterbacks, and the dominoes will fall when guys speak out. And we had a new voice emerge today, and I was very, very, you know, it sucks when you're moved when somebody says the obvious. As I mentioned, like just comes out and says something, just anything. It sucks when that got me excited, as excited as it did earlier. But I saw Carson Wentz step up today. Shannon asked for Tom, for Aaron. um, Guys that have been in the league a long time have big brands. And he should be asking, You know, where are these guys on this thing? And I think eventually they do step to the forefront. But who's going to be the first white franchise quarterback, big name in our sport that can move mountains? To come out and talk about this stuff. And we've had people talk about this stuff before, but Carson Wentz, fucking guy from South Dakota, who's got like five Labrador retrievers and spends half his time in a duck blind and probably never met a black person until he was 18 years old. He's a good dude, man. And he's a genuine article. So I wasn't surprised. I was invigorated to see him speak out and share some thoughts on the George Floyd uh, situation. And uh, I'll just read the tweet, which was a longer tweet uh, because it deserves the exposure. Carson Wentz did a good thing. Here's what he said. Been thinking about the George Floyd situation and thinking of the words to say and coming up empty. All I know is that the institutional racism in this country breaks my heart and needs to stop. Can't even fathom what the black community has to endure on a daily basis. Being from North Dakota, I've spent a large part of my life surrounded by people of similar color, so I'm never going to act like I know what the black community goes through or even has gone through already. I'll never know the feeling of having to worry about my kids going outside because of their skin color. However, I do know that we are all equal at the foot of the cross, and Jesus taught us to value others' lives like they were our own, regardless of skin tone. So this might seem like a ramble, and perhaps it is. I don't understand the society we live in that doesn't value all human life. It's heartbreaking and disturbing. My prayers go out to every man, woman, and child who has to endure the effects of racism in our society. Well fucking done, Carson. You want to talk about a Christian? That's a real Christian. Thanks for having the balls, man. Like I'm prouder of Carson Wentz right now than I ever was watching him make an unbelievable throw or play through an injury or seeing him... You know, do various charitable um, initiatives. This is the hardest thing he's done, and it shouldn't be. It should be more normal. But with the help, the help of Carson Wentz, it won't be so hard when the next guy talks, and the next guy speaks his mind, and that includes some of the guys that we've looked up for years that have, that have uh, been the face of the NFL. Take notice, younger guy. You know, guy from South Dakota, a guy that you would probably, if you didn't know him, if you rank the likelihood of a quarterback speaking out on these issues, you would put him pretty low on the totem pole there. And he spoke out and he spoke out eloquently. And I thought he did a really nice job, not just to to say, Hey, I'm disturbed at the George Floyd thing to mention institutional racism by name, you know, to, to acknowledge that he doesn't know how it feels to be black. None of us do, but that shouldn't stop us from, from speaking out and talking about this stuff. And I know some of y'all might be sick of this shit. I'm just so proud of my former teammate. I really am. He did a good thing. And I hope that it leads to another good thing. And then we can get this ball rolling and uh, be a part of, uh, of the solution because far too long are we looking around saying, Chris Long is the best we got here talking about this shit, being outspoken about it. I mean, like, listen, I'm, I'm a name, but <laughs> we need some heavy hitters. So I really appreciate that. Carson, you're the man. That's all I got on the serious stuff. We'll get to Steve Kerr. So this is a great guest on the Green Light Pod. I think this is the first coach I've had on. So uh, eight-time NBA champion. How many as a player? Three as a player in Chicago, two as a player in San Antonio, and then three with the Golden State Warriors. I've got coach Steve Kerr. But most importantly, the dude I rode a Sea-Doo uh, with in the <laughs> 90s. Uh, Steve, do you remember that? When we rode a jet ski, this is my claim to fame.
1: I do. Flathead Lake. I was visiting Larry Kristoviak, who had a three on three basketball tournament, charity basketball tournament. And what's the town that uh, is attached to Flathead? Paulson. Yeah, Paulson. That's right. So Larry was a teammate of mine in Chicago, and uh, he invited me to go to the tournament. I ended up hanging out with Frank Berkowski because Larry was kind of busy. Frank was trouble, as you know. Always, still is. Yeah, still is. And what I remember most is Frank and I up on a cliff. We were doing some cliff jumping into the lake, and you rode up on your jet ski, and you just kind of sat there. How old were you, about 10, maybe?
0: Man, this this had to be preteen years. And yeah, the fact that I was riding a jet ski, that was pretty uh, (laughs) redneck (laughs) that I was out there operating a piece of uh, personal watercraft. Uh, at 10. But yeah, I rolled up on the. You were at the cliff. I know the cliff.
1: Yeah, I was at the cliff and and I'm sitting there nervous as hell. And then I got this, this little 10-year-old on a jet ski, like sitting down there like, well, what are you waiting for? I mean, making <laughs> me feel like really like a wuss, right?
0: <laughs> well, listen, you're I, more ballsy than me, Steve, because like uh during my career, I totally shut down the outside physical activity. I know like the 90s were different as far as guys going and doing their own thing. You know, nowadays, football players get in trouble. They play, play, play pickup basketball. So I stared at that cliff for 11 years during my, my career. So I, the 10-year-old really? me should take note. I, I, never, I never graduated to actually jumping in it as a pro athlete.
1: <laughs> smart, smart. You were wiser than uh, Frank Bukowski and me. <laughs> yeah, man.
0: No, Frank, Frank <laughs> is always trouble. And he's always gonna he's always gonna get you into some shit. And I always remember because he still got that same place. And I and I remember um, it used to be crazy because Phil would be out at the lake. Uh, yeah. Jackson, Scotty Skiles would play pick up on the blacktop in my dad's backyard. Actually, you rolled through uh, Larry, obviously, who I saw recently because they they do the top 100 camp in Seville. So he rolled through it was good catching mm-hmm. up with him but i frank i talked to him today and he said when you talk to steve make mm-hmm. sure you you mention that my mom walked out that day when we were all standing on the dock and my mom uh, motioned to me and asked me who my new friend was thinking you were a teenager
1: <laughs> i think i was like 28 at the time
0: <laughs> yeah exactly exactly so uh- came a long way I got my 406 hat on here for the for the people listening. that's the montana area code. that is God's country up there. beautiful, beautiful place. I hope I can get up there this summer. Um, right now, okay we we're, we're, we're all faced with all the leagues, all the teams, athletes I mean this is this is unprecedented as I sit, sit back and think about being a player if I were a player right now, you're always responsible for your time and yourself in the offseason. I think it's one of the biggest differences between college and the pros but this is unprecedented, and um, this is going to challenge a lot of not only players and coaches, uh, organizations. How are you guys handling this time away? Is, is basketball, you think, one of the easiest leagues to – I know it's not easy, but relative to football and hockey, to pick it up and go if you guys get a chance to go again?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think, um, you know, there's two different sets of challenges. One is, is the obvious uh, – The health, the health issue, the safety issue for the players. The other set for us, unlike football and baseball, is that this happened during the season, and so you know Adam Silver is trying to weigh everything, uh, trying to to generate uh, some kind of situation where the the players would feel safe. You know, everybody involved uh, would feel safe and healthy. but that we could also pick up the season where we left off, what, 10, 11 weeks ago now and have some kind of finality to the year. For for us, obviously, you know, we're, we were already eliminated from the playoffs. So, you know, this is uh, – for us, it's it's kind of a non-issue. But, you know, there's so many teams that are fighting for a championship and all of a sudden, you know, the, the suspension happens. And so if we rev it back up, I mean – I don't even know how, as as a coach, you could just kind of restart everything three months later and and get your teams going. But, you know, everybody's in the same boat.
0: Well, I figure and we were parsing through this as players on the pod the other day was like, you know, if we were if we were a football team and you've been on some Zoom meetings, ironically, with Pete and Doug had you uh, pop into yeah. the Eagles Zoom as well, which is kind of messed up because. The 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 Seahawks and the Eagles are probably two of the top teams in the NFC. You're dropping knowledge on both. I um I I if I was a player right now and I had Zoom meetings, not only would I freeze the the picture like Ferris Bueller and leave the room, <laughs> but I um I'm joking by the way. I, I um I guess I would struggle with how you keep people together, how you do you know install new systems. We got Tom Brady uh, heading down to Tampa. I think a lot of people assume that it's a foregone conclusion with the quality of that roster. You go down to Tampa, you know, he's got Bruce Arians, has got those wide receivers. Why wouldn't they win 10 games? Well, I just think in general, in football, as much as anything, these are new systems you need to install. You need to have people on the same page. Hockey's talking about coming back. I talked to some hockey buddies. It's going to be a big challenge. The Stanley Cup playoffs is the most physical thing in sports. I, I believe that wholeheartedly. It's like a marathon and uh, very physical. And you can't replicate skating. I figure of any sport. And I learned this from watching that horse thing go viral. All these dudes have courts at their houses. I mean, how much can they effectively work together in this time? And how have y'all done that? Zoom meetings, pseudo practices, that that sort of thing.
1: Yeah, we haven't had any uh, practices. We've had a few Zooms. Uh, you know, it, it's different for every player. Steph Curry lives uh, in, in the suburbs. He's got a court at his house. He can be out there shooting as long as he wants all day long. We've got... Five or six of our young players who are in condos in downtown San Francisco, who don't have access to a court, and then of course you know every city's different based on city regulations, state regulations. Uh, so some NBA teams, uh, their practice facilities have already opened up, and right now uh, there's guidelines in place from the league where players are able to work out individually with coaches, but not as a group. Uh, But our practice facility, for example, has not opened up yet. We're hoping that it's going to open up next week. Um, But I think there's maybe eight out of the 30 teams that have not opened up yet. So everybody's kind of on a little different schedule based on regulations and that kind of stuff. And then it's up to, um, to the players if they can't have access to a gym or if they don't to just do what they can and, and, you know, ride Stairmasters, get on Pelotons, whatever they can do to stay in shape.
0: Would this be infinitely tougher in the nineties when you were a player?
1: It's a great question. I think it might be easier because I think there was because, because of the lack of um, social media players back then probably would have been, would have been able to sneak out, to high schools or yeah. you know black tops and and get shots up and and find a way around you know the regulations. Uh, these days, you know every every move you make uh, is is being filmed, being watched, and and so I think it's I think it's tougher now or in every which way.
0: Well, they got Tom Brady for a B and E. Essentially, first off, he he walks into Byron Leftwich's house to get a play a playbook, which he's not supposed to be doing. And then he's breaking into a as they they framed at a high school field to just try to throw some balls. And they tell him, "Hey, listen, uh, we're gonna enforce the rules down here in Tampa, and you got to go home." Which is crazy to hear the goat get told that. And I, I think there is like you and I, I think are both on the same page when it comes to like we have to take this seriously. I know there's entire. Subsection of the population that's that's politicized this or you know kind of minimized the hundred thousand deaths in a couple of months, which is is crazy to me. Um, but I think there's a way you can be safe and get shots off or whatever you know the, the things you're referring to. But to your point, you, if you if you head to a gym, you're setting a bad example if somebody catches you without context. It's tough. I, I look at it that way. So there's the health part of it, but then there's like the league execution part, which, which you hinted at. And I know they're floating a bunch of different formats for for getting back to work the nhl is going straight into playoffs what do you say to a team and you're you're in a position right now uncharacteristically with your teams where you're looking up if they do come back and play a few games before postseason i know dame talked about this lillard you know i don't know if i want to play meaningless games and risk my health in multiple ways i mean you know leading into a playoff that there's going to be maybe more injuries there's going to be more rust to shake off how would you motivate a player to take the court amid these safety concerns and the fact that it's probably futile for some teams?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I think it's going to vary from one player to the next, you know, in terms of what, uh, what each guy wants to do. I think for, for me, for our team, if, if the NBA just said, hey, we're going to start it back up, we're going to bring every team back, um, for sure what they would do is they'd give us a few weeks to practice. And we'd get, we'd get everybody, um, you know, back in the Bay or, or maybe they would send us off to a site. I'm not sure how the league's going to approach it. But we would go through the practices and I think we'd be able to gauge uh, where each player is physically. You know, where we are right now, we wouldn't do anything crazy. So there's no way anybody would be playing 40 minutes a night. Um, right. I think given that next season is most likely to be pushed back to about Christmas. Uh, it's a really long time to go without playing much basketball. You know, from right. March all the way to to late December, that's forever. So I think we would almost look look at it like a like a mini camp. I know you guys in the NFL have kind of off season uh, mini camps and stuff, whatever you call them. Um, I think that's how we'd look at it. You know, we get some practice in, get some game minutes, um, and this is a good way to to at least bridge the gap between March and, and next season.
0: Do you see like I've, saw, I've seen floated, and by the way, it's a great point because you guys do have the flexibility to move it back a little bit. The, the NHL, again, a very physical league, they're talking about taking a month break and going full speed ahead into a 21 season that's 82 physical games and you guys do, do a, a hell of a job of, you know, I know that there's load management and that sort of thing, but it's a marathon for y'all too. I think they have to consider that stuff. They've talked about a 1-16 through 16 type tournament where you eliminate the conferences the west mm-hmm. has, has been ridiculous this this millennium uh do you do you look at that and you think oh that'd be interesting to maybe play an eastern conference team the first round say we were in this thing or do you look at it and say like that that doesn't change anything for me
1: i think uh, i know the nba has tossed around various um scenarios um going forward not not just during this COVID nineteen crisis, but even before, the, the league's been looking at different ways to uh, have their playoffs. Maybe have some, you know, some kind of a play-in tournament to get in the playoffs. Yeah, like
0: World Cup style.
1: Yeah, exactly. And they've talked about starting later so that uh, we're not competing with football in in uh, November and December, and you know maybe starting in around Christmas and, and pushing the season back into July. There's there's been a lot of this stuff that's discussed. In the past, to me, now is the perfect time to try any of that. Right? You almost have a blank slate because of what's happened. Uh, it's 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 made everybody, whether in the sports world or or any other business, it's forced everybody to be really creative. And I think we're seeing that, um, you know, around the country as you look at people operating, um, whether it's you know restaurants or or some kind of, uh, you know, business and and figuring out how can we operate without, you know, the violating regulations. So you start thinking about all the different ways. Well, if you have this blank slate in the NBA, and we're going to be doing some crazy stuff anyway, why not try out, you know, some of these things you've been thinking about for years anyway?
0: Yeah. So one of the things that's gotten us through this crazy time and the normalcy that it brought was pretty palpable. Uh, and it, all you had to do was get online was, was the last dance. I mean, and you and I had talked a little bit about it, um, getting you on to talk about it. Uh, I, I, loved, I loved seeing you featured heavily in that thing and, and your story, which I knew, that was illuminating for a lot of people. And, and you were very vulnerable and honest, which I thought was awesome. Speaking of vulnerability, one of the things you took away was that Mike was more vulnerable. And sometimes you wondered if he was a robot. I know you said that before, that, he was a machine. Uh, did, did you enjoy watching it? Like, what was that? What was that like for you? Because I know you don't know what's going to happen. I mean, you're to a degree like the rest of us.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, um, it was really interesting to watch. You know, i watched with my kids, they were toddlers when all that was going on. So that part was really fun, because I had never seen most of that footage. So to go back uh, in time and, and see what uh, what that, what my life was like for my kids, um, you know, just watching it with them was amazing. Uh, and then it brought back a lot of memories and it opened up some old wounds too, you know, and, and um, it was a really powerful documentary. I thought uh, Jason Hare did a phenomenal job directing it. Um, but you know, there, stuff happens, right? You just, it opens up old wounds. Guys start thinking about stuff. Certain guys aren't, Featured, you know, I was a little disappointed that Luke Longley, who was our starting center uh, all those years, Ron Harper, uh starting guard. We barely heard anything about about them.
0: Although Ron delivered one of the best lines of the documentary, which was uh it was dealing with uh guarding MJ in the in the Cleveland series <laughs> uh when he hit the shot over Craig, Craig Elo. <laughs> uh it, it was something uh, laced with profanity, something to the effect of "Fine, you want Craig to guard him? Craig can guard
1: him." <laughs> That's right. That was a good line. Yeah. That was good. Uh, but you know, there was there was some of that. It, you know, watching it, it was good because we got reconnected. Um, we ended up, I ended up talking with a lot of teammates um, and texting and them and and just sharing old memories and and that part was fun. Um, but yeah, it brings up a lot of good memories and bad ones, and everything in between. And uh, I think there's a reason teams generally don't want cameras behind the scenes, right? Uh, that stuff is really personal. And yep. uh, you guys have had hard knocks. Have, have, were you ever on a team with that did hard knocks?
0: No, and I prayed that I never was, Steve, because we, yeah. you know, and yeah. and you can identify with this. What y'all had is cool, especially if you're MJ, because you have the lock and key on the the editorial last. Um, the, the last set of eyes on it and you know but to to your point you know throughout my career I was on some bad teams my first eight years of my career most people remember me being a champion late in my career but I played in St. Louis on really bad teams that were often in the running if we weren't if we were more entertaining <laughs> if more people cared it's bad when you're bad and nobody cares if you're the Cowboys and you're bad cameras will flock um <laughs> you know we we flirted with it. I was nervous about it. I know the Eagles had, you know, that Amazon thing this year where it was kind of all access. I was very glad I talked to my friends. I was very glad that I was not a part of that team. Just for that reason, I would have loved to keep playing. But, you know, it it, it would have put me in a weird bind. You don't know how to act when the cameras are around. And that's why like part of it, I know people are saying, like, yeah, it was unprecedented access. And yeah, it felt real. But when athletes are in a locker room and there's a camera around, you're never getting the true. You know, back mm-hmm. and forth, and I could feel that a little bit,
1: yeah, I think so. And th- although I will say that after a while, th- you know they were there every day, and after a while, it was yeah. almost like you know they just blended in, you know the first the first couple of months, it was really weird, and especially because Phil Jackson had, had always been a coach who felt like the locker room was sacred, you know, that you couldn't just have anybody walk in and so our locker room was really private and then all of a sudden we go into that season in 98 and phil says well there's going to be a camera crew following us around we're all like "Wait, what what the hell but but i I would say by mid-season it was kind of like you know they're they're just there they are and they're also following michael around the whole time so they were easy to avoid if we wanted to and um and i think after a while we just we just they they just kind of blended in so it wasn't too intrusive
0: there were almost three functionalities to the series for me and one was for the young people now who watch first take and just digest comparisons all day they don't even know who they're comparing lebron or kobe god mm-hmm. rest his soul too it's one thing to look at stats you know it's one thing to look at highlights but to live it as a sports fan which i got to it was really cool. But even for somebody my age, the first three was ancient history to me. I'm six years old when they play the Pistons. So yeah. it was illuminating for me in the middle. It was illuminating for younger people. And then for older people, it was a blast of nostalgia. And you arrived right before Mike came back, a year or two before Mike came back. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And um, that's, those were the two years he went and uh, played baseball. And, and it actually, that, that period, Turned my career around because I was in about my fifth year, but I was kind of on my way out of the league. I um, I was a free agent. I had no offers, and and the Bulls offered me a spot. And part of the reason I played so much that year was because Michael was gone. You know, he he left a a void and and a uh, lot of minutes, and and so I was able to kind of resurrect my career while he was gone. And and then when he came back, it was like incredible just to to realize okay now you know we are we're going to get a chance to compete for a championship and and what that means individually you know I don't know I'm sure it's different in football but in basketball you know when you're competing for a championship and there's it's the titles are generally driven by your best you know two three players right so we we knew Michael was driving these championships with Scotty and obviously they had, you know, Dennis Rodman, um, taking care of the the, the glass. And and those three guys were our stars. But the thing with, with that, with basketball is you always have a chance to have a moment, you know, um, uh, where you're going to get the ball and you're going to be in big moments. And even though you're not driving the championship run, you're going to be able to play a part in it. And, um uh, and that was really exciting, but also nerve-wracking. You know, you didn't want to screw up, and yeah. uh, so that, that was a big part of learning to adjust to play with Michael. He was such a big star; we didn't really know him that well. But you know, if he threw you the ball, you, you felt you felt <laughs> you better do
0: the right thing with it. And you did it, You did you the bet. right thing with the game six. I I loved. I loved seeing you. He was like, yo, like keep this. Keep this on the low, Steve. Like, here's what we're gonna do, and you're like, "Yeah, yeah, I'll do that." <laughs> you're yeah. like screaming to the camera. Yeah, like- <laughs> <laughs> it's so great. But I mean, when you show up on the scene, you're hearing about the lore of Michael Jordan. I'm pretty sure right. he's in Birmingham. He's not visiting the team until BJ right. asked him to come back, and which I thought was really cool. BJ seemed like a really good teammate. He seemed like he was a, a, a nice force to have in the locker room. But I, um, I figure you're sitting there and you're hearing about Mike. What was that lore like? What were people saying about him? And did you ever? have a sense was it like a foregone conclusion that he was just gone for a bit and that he was coming back
1: you no know, we didn't really ever sense that he was coming back uh, to that point um, you know we a lot of us had played against him but but most of us hadn't played with him and so BJ uh, and John Paxson who was a player uh, was a teammate for a year and then became a, a broadcaster and a coach yeah but he was a really good uh, mentor for me. Uh, so those guys kind of shared with me, Bill Cartwright also, kind of what kind of guy Mike was and, and uh, you know, what it was going to be like to play with him. But I thought BJ said something really interesting in the documentary, which was that you know the, the guys on the first three Pete came up with Michael before he became Michael Jordan Global Superstar. And so they got to know him a lot better. Uh, for us on the second three-peat, he was already this, this icon. And we never got to know him that well because he was always being swept away by his security guys to right to the hotel, to his suite. You know, we never really went out with him and had dinner with him. And, and BJ made that point. I thought it was a really good one. Um, it was almost like we were, you know, teammates with this icon instead of this human being. And so it was hard to to relate to him.
0: I noticed that. I mean, like the one thing, and this isn't a, a bad thing. I think that level of greatness and isolation from a competitive drive standpoint, from a mentality standpoint, and the things he'd been through, the the burden he'd shouldered, because I can only imagine if he if MJ is playing now, he waits eight years with first take on every day. It's going to be exhausting, you know, hearing about is he ever going to win the big one and that sort of thing. And then the way the media spun that whole thing with his dad. So I, I can understand why, you know, he, he was kind of a lonely. It seemed to me in a healthy way. I mean, he's on an island. He played himself and competed himself onto this island. And I noticed one funny thing about him was his friends were interesting people. They weren't. I mean, like he was friends with his teammates. I could tell. But he found friends. It was like he's an old soul. Whether it was Gus mm-hmm. with the security guards, whether it was guys that 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 didn't need anything from him other than you know. They're working for the yeah. team. They're familiar faces, guys he could trust yeah. somehow.
1: Yeah. He felt comfortable with those guys because they protected him, but they were, uh, they were older. And I think they hinted on the documentary that, you know, they almost were father figures to him after he lost his dad. Uh, but it was, it was interesting. I, we rarely went out with him or saw him out. I do remember a night where we, we were in Phoenix. We went to a, a, uh, to play pool, like maybe four of us. And it was a Tuesday night. It was like, nobody's in this pool hall. And maybe there's 15 pool tables, 20 pool tables, and they're all empty. And I'm with like, you know, Bushler and Tony Coach Luke Longley, you know, we're playing pool. We're the only ones in this place. And Michael walked in with his security guys, he he loves to compete. He loves to shoot pool. He, he walks in. He goes, "Hey, what's up, fellas?" We're like, "Hey, how you doing?" He goes to a table in the back. I'm not kidding, Chris. Within half an hour, the place was packed. Yeah, and people were hanging outside, trying to get in, snapping pictures. And this was kind of before cell phones, right? So this was not like some guy sees sees him and tweets it. This is. Like the guy at the bar goes to the payphone and sticks the quarter in. Unbelievable.
0: It's, yeah. <laughs> the the <laughs> way the world, it was like when he unretired or uh, I couldn't remember if it was retired or unretired and he's at Comiskey throwing out the first pitch. And I'm saying to myself today, everybody's getting that alert at the same time on their phone. You know, a big Michael yeah. Jordan announcement. Yeah. That had to spread organically, like people yeah. were just tapping each other on the. Right. It's just, it's just the way things were. And the one of the funniest things to me was after y'all got in that scuffle, which I want to ask you about was, he said he called you and he didn't have he didn't have your number. And I think you know fans on the outside were shocked by that. But I'm saying to myself like, team sports. I mean, it's not like college, okay? Like you, you love your teammates. You you, you go to war with them. You're you're you compete your ass off for them. But Every guys have their own lives too. And so, you know, I, I'm imagining him going through a, a Rolodex trying to find your number and then calling you on one of those big ass car phones. Did he call you on a car phone or a house, a
1: house yeah. phone? <laughs> it was a rotary, I think. Uh, I don't know. You know, that's, you're right though. Back then, you know, you had to either memorize somebody's number or you had it in a Rolodex or like your address book or whatever. Yeah. But you know, I, like, I, I didn't know anybody's number other than my mom's, you know, yeah. like, I had to look for everything. Right. Uh, but I, there's, yeah, it there was, a, it was just a different time. And, you know, I'm, I'm definitely feeling old now with this conversation, but.
0: Uh, no, it's all good. I'm not trying to make you feel old, man. <laughs> I, I, um, it's, it's funny. You talk about the fight and people made big deals about fights. I don't know how it was in the NBA in the nineties. I'm sure there were a lot more than there are now, but. Guys fight. I mean, I was in fist fights. Uh, there's fist fights in practice. Guys make up and they go back to, to work with each other. And I thought, you know, but that theme, you know, of earning respect, being tested by the alpha, that's something that's real in every sport. And I, I thought, yeah, I wasn't surprised that you didn't back down from him. But I, I guess, you know, that entire process, whether it was game six, shot, the fight, talk about him earning Making guys earn his respect, and and I guess my burning question would be: Did he leave a mark when he hit you in the eye, or did he get <laughs> you solid? Did you get a shiner at all?
1: I got a shiner. I really? Did. Yeah. And uh, after it happened, uh, Phil Jackson came over. Phil, I see. I, I had a different memory from uh, what Michael described on the on the show. So he said Phil kicked him out of practice. My memory was that Phil had gone upstairs to his office while we were scrimmaging because he had to take a phone call from the league or something and that's when we got into it so phil came down to say like you know see what was going on and i remember him coming over to me he goes you're going to have to clean that up and i go my eye or my relationship with michael <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's unbelievable yeah when people like nobody mess with Michael Jordan. Okay. Michael Jordan is a, is a, is a, is a lion. I mean, he's got the heart of a champion. He's, he's, he's uh, we we tell you, he's borderline sociopathic with the competitiveness, but that doesn't mean he can kick everybody's ass. I, you know, guys fear him because you can't go back at Mike and punch Mike in the face. What happens if you punch Mike in the face? Are you on the next bus
1: out? Well, I, I, I guess it depends who you are, but, uh... I don't think anybody was was ever going to do that. But to go back to your original point, um, that we had probably a couple other fights that year. Generally speaking, uh, back then there were more fights than now because we scrimmaged a lot more. Right. Um, Just like I'm guessing there there were more practice with pads in the '90s in the NFL than there are now. We've gotten smarter, so we're 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 trying to protect. Players' bodies now, right. but back then we scrimmaged all the time, and so there was constant competition. And there, on every team that I played on, there was usually a fight or two and, during the season. And like you said, you you make up, you move on, and um, it's just it's just part of competing. It's you know, people don't get to the NBA without being unbelievably competitive, or the NFL, and you're also fighting for your Career and a lot of money and and you know your your life and and your family and everything else. So you you gotta you gotta fight for everything. It's Uh, true,
0: man. I I always tell people that training camp it's hot. People are their jobs are on the line. And in football, not everybody's getting paid like they get paid in basketball. I'm not minimizing the struggle of you know the last guy on a roster and basketball team, but it is a desperate situation. Guys are living in extended stays. It's not you know not everybody's a millionaire. You know, a couple times over, it's it's tough, and it's I always say it's like rubbing two pit bulls' noses together. Eventually there's going to be a scrap. and um and that's what happens. But I thought it was really cool to recount of it. It's universal in any sport. you know, leaders test guys in different ways. And I thought with his leadership style, you know everybody everybody wants to be MJ. You know, everybody wants to lead that way or you know that's what it takes to be a champion. I, I, I got a different spin on it as a player. I was a leader on the teams I was on. I've been a, been a captain. I was the older guy. I think there's different ways to skin a cat, I think. And I think if you try to be somebody you're not, that's the number one problem when it comes to being a leader or assuming that role. I really believe that had somebody else tried to be MJ, not only first would it, that's a tightrope because you have to be perfect to be that demanding of people. Um, and guys would, if, if some, if the eighth guy on the roster acted like MJ and this isn't a a slight of MJ, you can't just snap your fingers and say, I'm going to lead like MJ. Um, you know, it, what are people missing about that? I mean, because I feel like everybody thinks you could just you could just turn that on.
1: Yeah, authenticity is is the biggest thing for sure. And you know, I went straight from Chicago to San Antonio after uh, my days with the Bulls. <clears throat> and Tim Duncan was like the complete opposite of Michael. Um, he was quiet, um, unbelievably competitive, but just. Just gonna, he was just going to come in and get his work in. And he was humble. He was he was uh, funny. Uh, he set a great tone in terms of the work ethic. But, you know, you just felt really comfortable by his side. And uh, I, th- I would say Steph Curry is a lot like that, too. You know, right. great sense of humor. And, you know, you, you, you come to the Warriors, you're going to feel comfortable because Steph Curry is going to make you feel comfortable. And both Steph and Tim are amazing leaders. And right. so, uh, but what makes them amazing is their authenticity. And, and that's the key. Michael was being authentic. And so everyone respected that. Uh, and, you know, I, I think his, his fire and the way he led, I would argue, was more important for his own game than it was for ours. You could tell. Like, I don't think I, I. don't think I played any better because because he was putting all this pressure uh, on me. I think I think he he needed to keep pressure on everybody to keep that edge that he that he had and that he right. felt, and he wanted our team to keep that edge, which which I, I think is was a valid point.
0: Did you guys and and first of all, I just want to commend you because I I knew about what happened to your father and. Um, I didn't know the details. You haven't been one that's talked at length about it often, but I was incredibly moved like everybody else. And I thought you were awesome and vulnerable. And that was one of the most touching sequences in the whole thing. I never put that together, you know, with you and Mike. Um, had you guys really never talked about that?
1: No, no, we never talked about it. And, and again, it was, um, it kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier we didn't get to know him that well. You know, he was already this global superstar by the time uh, that second three-peat team yeah. came around. And so every night while, you know, we were, you know, getting to know Scotty Pippen, you know, Ron Harper, Luke Longley, we were all getting to know each other because we were going out to dinner or seeing each other or, or, you know, having a drink, whatever. Michael was in his room because he couldn't go outside without being mobbed. And uh, we didn't have, so we never had that kind of a relationship where, where we would be able to talk about something so personal.
0: Now, you, Jerry Krause came up a lot, okay? And I understand why he takes a lot of it on the chin and he's not here to defend himself. So this is, you know, it's delicate that way. And I think a lot of people realize that an episode or two in. I think, is it possible to be one of the best GMs of all time and also one of the worst and make some of the worst moves of all time? Uh, Can can those two things be true?
1: Yes. Yeah. No, they can. They can. Um, Because, you know, Jerry built the team and hired Phil Jackson and, you know, drafted Scottie Pippen, uh, who was basically unknown at the time. Uh, traded for Dennis Rodman, you know, signed all the free agents. Michael Jordan was was there, but he knew what he was doing. He traded Charles Oakley for Bill Cartwright in an era where you had to guard Patrick Ewing and Hakeem Olajuwon and David Robinson and, and uh, eventually Shaq. And so Jerry was a brilliant GM in terms of making moves um, and building a team. Uh, you know, I, what I said in the documentary is um, how I felt and how I still feel. He just couldn't get out of his own way. You know, right. he, just, he needed more credit. You know, it's interesting. Somebody had a line, I think maybe in the documentary, he, uh, he deserved more credit than he got, but he wanted more credit than he deserved. Than he deserved. <laughs> you know? So, because I think if you're, if you're in Jerry Krause's position, um, the the way to go is you say, we got Michael Jordan. We're good. We're we're winning championships because we have Michael Jordan. We're lucky to have him. And then you let everybody else talk about all the moves you've made, you know, to to build the team around him. Um, but he just wasn't comfortable enough in his own skin right. to be able to allow for that. And It was actually kind of sad. It really was um, because it. He actually did a great job putting that team together.
0: Yeah, I felt for him. I mean, he definitely took a lot of shit from everybody and definitely took a lot of shit from MJ. MJ, MJ liked the short jokes when it came to Jerry. Uh, right. But I, I thought Jerry was, um, I mean, all the things you mentioned, people remember the last thing. And, you know, it's the saddest part to me outside of the real life stuff from a basketball standpoint. You could feel it. It was palpable when when Mike was talking. Uh, was the what might have been at the end the way they tied it Mm -hmm. together was you're really sitting there thinking and as a kid I'm watching y'all play and as a kid you just watch what goes on in the court you're not knowing what's going on in the front office it's a different time and uh, I'm just considering you know right now if that had happened and you blow something up like that the pandemonium that would ensue
1: yeah it's it's I've had so many people ask me that question like how could that have happened? And it, it it's it's really impossible to explain because um uh, it 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 shouldn't have happened right. but it it just did. It felt it felt over at the time. Uh the relationship between Phil and Jerry was was done. Uh the team was exhausted um but what should have happened is Michael Jordan should have kept playing basketball for the Bulls somehow, right. and I think you can you can blame anybody for that, um, but that's that should have happened and it didn't and it's just crazy and it's impossible to explain to to anybody why that happened. And didn't. you
0: could feel the sadness. I mean, Mike Mike powered through a lot in that whole thing heavy topics but you could tell he got emotional and to your point it was almost like he's a machine only a couple things made him emotional and that was you know the disbanding of that team and his standard for if you don't want to play that way don't play that way I mean and evidently that's 40 45 minutes into the interview or one of the first questions they ask him so pretty remarkable uh and to your point it was it was great to see him be a little bit more vulnerable um I wanted to hit you with some, some quick stuff to finish, but first I, I, I got to hit the heavy stuff. So I'm looking at your stint in, in, um, the only place you ever went that it didn't turn to gold was, was Phoenix. I mean, that was, you know, in the early years, you weren't a part of winning there, but the Phoenix thing, your foray into the front office, GMs, mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. your GM, your, your, uh, your, your, president of basketball o- operation. Um, Do you take a lot from what Jerry taught you, Um, and who did you like? Who did you model your mo after as a front office guy? Because you got Jordan as a player, other other leaders. You've got coaches. This is in the middle.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, To be perfectly frank, I got that job two thousand seven, straight out of the broadcasting booth, and it was brand new. I had never spent any time in a, in a front office. I hadn't even coached. And so it was a big step and I made, I made a lot of mistakes and, you know, I, I, think, um, I think it was one of the best things I could have done to help prepare me to coach later on because I was able to really get a look at the, uh, dynamics of a front office and the relationships, how important the relationships were, coach, GM, owner, best player. I, I saw all that up close, but you have to experience it you know, to, before you can really know how to handle it. And so it was an incredible experience for me, but uh, I did not do a great job. There were, yeah, sure. There were, there were some obstacles, but uh, you know, I, I could have handled things a lot better. We had a, we had a really good team, um, a championship contender kind of right at the tail end of, uh, of the team's run with Steve Nash and Sean Marion and that crew. Mm-hmm. And the, it was uh,
0: a fun group. It was a really fun group,
1: really fun team, but and um, you
0: didn't st- like, I know you're, I know you're, you're like, we get it you could have done some things better. Sure. But I see players go into this front office world all the time in a bunch of sports. Why do you think that it's not as easy for players to transition to that world as it is coaching? I I think the answer might be obvious, but, but lend some, some, uh, some, some light on that.
1: Well, I think, you know, coaching uh, is so much, uh, you know, done on the court. And so if you, if you played for as long as you, played, you got an upfront look at what your coach was teaching you, what your team felt like, what the locker room felt like, what the culture was. Um, And meanwhile, you had no idea what the GM was doing upstairs. Right. And so uh, there's there's very little training uh, unless you get into, uh, you know, a front office at a lower level and really experience it. And I think that's, that's what I would recommend to anybody who's, uh, you know, looking to get into the front office from, you know, t- to make that transition is you really have to, 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 to do it as a consultant, as a lower level person um, and understand it and learn and, and find mentors. I think finding mentors and, and uh, people who can help you learn is just crucial in any field. Yeah. Um and, and that's something that I really uh, searched for in coaching. And I had some built in mentors, the guys I played for. Uh, but I also found some guys, including Pete Carroll, who were instrumental in me uh, figuring out my voice and he was really. He was great. He yeah. was fantastic. Yeah. And uh and I so I spent I spent a couple of years preparing. To coach and visiting i went and visited uh, bill parcells in, in saratoga you- new york had lunch with him it was incredible um, yeah. very and,
0: different than pete
1: totally different and totally. that's
0: the thing is there's so many different you talk about cultures i mean in the nfl and that's that's a, a follow-up there would be it's got to be harder to build a culture now in the nba with free agency with the way things are just in general than it was in the 90s yeah or no yeah.
1: Yeah, I think so because there's more player movement. I think the, um, I think if you are lucky enough to have a core group that sticks together for a few years, that's really how you can get it going. And for us, we were incredibly lucky uh, because you know we had some really great players with Steph Curry, Draymond Green, Blake Thompson, and then obviously Kevin Durant coming along too. But we had, we just had guys who were who just embodied what we were searching for you know we we wanted to to compete and we wanted to enjoy things we wanted we really talked a lot about about enjoying the whole process and and um Steph Curry embodies joy as an athlete better than any any anybody I've ever seen and uh, so we had a lot of built-in advantages and and things have really taken shape for us but when guys leave, um, you know, it's, it's tougher to keep that, that culture intact.
0: Yeah. Well, you've got your glue guys like Draymond, you've got, you know, your stars and your leaders and that sort of thing. But the, the introduction of a a brand new force in like Kevin a few years back, I mean, that's most people are like, yeah, it's automatic. It's a super team. It's that sort of thing. But I think mean, what people miss on the outside is you have to maintain that culture and you have to make guys work together and it's challenging. I mean, because everybody on the floor in the NBA is a superstar. I mean, that's just a fact. Uh pretty much and and relative to football players, we play behind a mask where, you know, there's 53 guys on a roster. How do, how do you balance that when you get fresh blood in to an existing, you know, culture that's working yeah. on a dynasty?
1: I think it all just depends on uh, the makeup of the team and the roster. You know, yeah. it, I think the, the makeup of your roster is so crucial in the NBA and I imagine it's similar in the NFL. You know, you really need a, a good balance of young guys and veterans and you need mentors. Uh, if you have all young guys who are fighting for playing time, fighting for shots, fighting for money, it's a recipe for disaster. So how you build your roster is, is crucial. I'm interested though, it, from your perspective as a player, you got 53 guys on a roster, another, how many on a practice squad, five, 10? More than you
0: can count. And, you know, yeah. five, seven guys, and they're, they're rotating in and out. You know, there are times, admittedly, during the year where you might not know everybody's name on the yeah. team. I mean, yeah. that's very, especially the older you get. I mean, and yeah. when I Steve, when I tell you I played in St. Louis and guys were coming and going, I mean, there was on bad yeah. teams, there's a lot of turnover. I played with a thousand guys. So it, it just, you know, call uh, just call everybody, you just
1: call everybody bro or, or buddy, buddy,
0: <laughs> brother, buddy. I mean, <laughs> one of the B words. Uh, and, yeah. and you know what? I mean, like, I, I, I think all that matters is that you treat people with respect yeah. as, as yeah. a leader. I think, you know, how you treat the 53rd man on the roster is, is just as important as how your stars get along because you, you as a leader, all you're doing, you're not only it's carrot or stick, but it's also, it's also, I think, instilling hope in people, incentive. And, you know, you, you, really, for the bottom of your roster, and this is something that a lot of great coaches I've been around believe in, and I'm sure you do too, is like the bottom of your roster has to be just as strong because on yeah. Sunday I have to count on that guy, Jeff Fisher, who uh, is a big part of my life as a football player and he's taken his licks, uh, you know, in, in coaching, it's, it's tough. He's been to the Super Bowl. he's had bad years, whatever. Uh, but he taught me so much uh, about leadership because one of the first things that we used to have the rookies come in and you know sing and you know we'd throw stuff right. at them and and you you you'd haze them not like the haze back in the day but the first year Jeff came in and we had a very salty defense very salty group that would we'd be tough on rookies but I always had the the belief to treat them like people you know because they are grown men I'm not gonna demean you that we're gonna mm-hmm. haze you but. We were like, "Hey, you get up here and sing!" Everybody's going crazy. The rookie's starting to walk up. Jeff stops the meeting and said, "Hey, I don't want to hear that ever again. You know, I'm not going to make our rookies do stupid shit. We need to. We need to depend on them on Sunday, and you need to treat them like you're going to depend on them on Sunday." And I thought that was profound. Uh, and we tried to do that anyways, but just cutting out some of those things and just realizing that the fourth corner. Could easily be the first corner, the way injuries sure. go on yeah. a Sunday, and when a game comes down to it, it's one guy screwing up. You know, yeah. you you, yeah. you really do uh, you really do lose so many games with that guy who thought he wasn't going to play is plugged yeah. in. So you, your job as a leader in the NFL, I think, is exhaustively to make everybody feel a part of it.
1: How many leaders would you say the average team? Has in a, on a football team. Good leaders, yeah, yeah. I think if
0: you average it all out, maybe two, two or three. But two, two or three. But to be a leader, you have to lead by example too. So you have to be able to lead from the front. There's veterans and there's leaders. So mm-hmm. you know, I always said this in the tail end of my career. Uh, and yeah, it's a bit selfish to in free agency to say, "Hey, I need to know what my role is going to be. I'll work for it." But because I can't lead from the back, you're telling me on one hand hey, I need you to come here and be a leader. But the way I am is I have to be out there proving to guys that I put my equity into this thing too on the field. Because my right. words are more hollow if I'm not making plays. So I think when you're on good teams, you have more good leaders. In New England, we had a bunch of them. Tom wasn't it. Um, Tom was the tremendous everyman leader relative to being, like you said, Michael. He's a god. I never thought to, to text Tom. I mean, Tom and I talked every day. I mean, he was different than Mike. You know, when I arrived, I was a good player, but he stopped me in the hallway and said, hey, Chris, I'm Tom. I'm like, no shit you are. Uh, (laughs) You know, but I never thought to hit him up and have a beer with him. There were guys on that team like Dante Hightower, Matt Slater, some of the best leaders I'd ever encountered. And fans often see who goes out to the coin toss, the stars. But there are guys on every roster who are kind of those hidden leaders. Um, But they have to be contributing, at least in the NFL, in my opinion.
1: Yeah. 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 It's, uh, I think basketball is similar. You, you generally have, uh, you know, one or two guys who, who are your leaders for us. It's, it's, you know, Steph's our quiet leader and Draymond is our loud one. Yeah. And, uh, I think what's really crucial for us is, um, uh, is having guys on the bench who, who get it, who understand, uh, that their role is going to be, they're going to play one night. They're not going to play the next. Right. Um, but they've got to be ready the whole time. And right. That's that's a, a really hard job, but it's a necessary one. And uh, so, if you can get you know your guys ten through fourteen, there's usually a couple rookies in there. Maybe they're not ready yet, but if you can get a couple guys in that area who are good enough that you can count on, and professional enough that you don't have to play them all the time to keep yeah. them happy, it's a it's gold. It's amazing. Yeah that is, you
0: know. No, it sounds it sounds like it. Last last um last thing on, on MJ, pretty much. Uh do you think guys could handle his leadership style today?
1: Yeah, yeah, I do. I do. Yeah, I mean the reason it worked is not because of because it was a great leadership style. It's worked because he was Michael fucking Jordan. <laughs> 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 yeah we
0: touched on that i mean if mike's out there you know eighth guy on the roster uh with with that kind of yeah. you know attitude uh it would have been tough i so yeah I, I i agree with you i think it it, it uh got, i think it's overblown the guys are soft nowadays thing i'm watching the thing and one of the things that jumped out at me the most was that you know mike played golf with uh who was it before the Celtics series it was mm-hmm. danny eight yeah i'm thinking to myself like do you know how bad a player in 2020 would get fried for getting get caught crushed. doing
1: that? Yeah. Get crushed. So,
0: so anyways, um, you have been incredibly outspoken relative to coaches um, and players, white players, white coaches, you've been a player. So I think you've been in locker rooms uh, when it comes to these tough subjects, how much is being a player separate you as far as feeling confident and comfortable enough, tackling these tough issues, social justice, you know, you've talked about gun control, equality quality in our country. Um, I know it helps me having spent time in locker rooms with my my brothers, you know, like guys that I suited up with and grew up different than me. Mm hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. I think um, I, th- I think having played and gotten to know so many different teammates, uh, guys from different backgrounds, uh, different countries, um, I think all that matters. You know, um, I think it matters that I traveled uh, as a kid um, and lived overseas for five years out of my childhood. Uh, Lived in in places where, um, you know, there was uh, you know abject poverty and 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 totally different uh, cultures. And so I was lucky; I got a chance from through my parents to really see the world and to meet a lot of different people and to kind of get a, have a different worldview than uh, maybe your, your average you know, kid growing up in the United States. So all of that has been helpful uh, in, it, in making me feel more comfortable and speaking out on the things that I, I think are important.
0: On a week like this, um, where obviously it's hard to talk about sports right now, I mean, I know that George Floyd is not the first person to die at the hands of police brutality by any stretch of the imagination, but now we have camera phones, and now we have um, sort of this vantage point that we didn't have 10, 15 years ago, and beyond like, what's this week like for you? Do you look at something when this happens, and do you look at it as a responsibility to weigh in every time? Uh, How do you pick your spots? How do you, do you you have somebody uh, that doesn't look like you that you call, and say, hey, am I missing the point on this, or do you just shoot from the hip?
1: I've got friends uh, who are in the thick of it in in uh, you know in the inner city who are are really fighting hard for um, equality for the lives of people who are impoverished, uh, and I've learned from them, and I tend to call them and ask what can I do? You know, I think that's the biggest thing is that, and I know you've been uh, great and you've been outspoken and, and you feel similarly uh, in that you just want, you you want people to be respected. You want our country to, to, to be better. Um, so what can we do as, as white guys? You know, it's a, it's a totally different vibe. Um, and that's, there's a it's an interesting dynamic Chris because we you you and I have the white privilege right we can say anything and basically people are going to listen um or we might we might get some criticism but
0: we get so, less than than, than yeah, you yeah. know our, our teammates or right. uh, friends of color
1: yeah but you know this is just this week, right? I yeah. mean, we just got done talking about Ahmad Arbery in, in Georgia. And I, I know that every single year uh, that I've coached, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm, I'm, I'm asked one month about some mass shooting. I'm asked the next month about, uh, you know, race killing, um, a, a, you know, a case of police brutality. Like it, this stuff, it's, this is not the exception. This is the rule. This is happening in our country all the time. And so we have to decide as as white people, like enough is enough, right? Yeah. You, you, we, we can't just point it out on Twitter or whatever, like like you and I do, without following up and yeah. doing something, right? So what is that step? And I think that's what I'm trying, to, to figure out now in my life, you know, where, where can I go? How can I actually make an impact? Not just raise the subject, but yeah. actually make an impact.
0: Yeah, I'd love it if we got to a point where raising the subject was fairly normal. I, you know, I've always been uncomfortable with praise people have given me, and I'm sure you feel the same way at times, because saying that somebody being gunned down in the street for being black uh, is wrong, is not something you deserve a medal for. I'd love it if we got to the point where, you know, people that look like you and I, and by the way, the craziest thing about it is you said, I, I call my friends and I say, what can I do? Literally 10.07 last night, text message to Malcolm. What can I do, bro? Happy to help if you got something yeah. yeah. police related coming off this. So I think that's the best question and that's my follow-up to you. And maybe it's already answered is, How do you advise white athletes? Because I'm sure you've had some white players who might have confided in you and said, I don't know how to talk about this. I understand to a degree why some guys don't because it is, it's a minefield. Even somebody who's well-versed like you or somebody who's been involved with legislative stuff like myself or, you know, played with, in a D-line room, I'm the only white guy. I mean, like, I'm the minority in my D-line room. So I might have had 11-year career of those experiences, but still sometimes... I feel like I'm tiptoeing and I don't know what to do. And I think that's, I think that's something white players, white coaches, influencers should hear. It's not like, I just had this conversation with Carson Wentz. I shared with you that, that tweet. I, I was very moved by that because you heard Shannon Sharp talk about that this week. He said, you know, who, who's going to step up? We need Tom Brady, Aaron Rodgers. Mm -hmm you know, it's great that we've got X,Y,Zs of the world, but we need the, the big name quarterbacks and that sort of thing. So to see that, that happen, And he said, he said, institutional racism. He typed those words out. That was really important to me. And, uh, and I got chills thinking about it because it's so bare minimum, but that's all we need. We just need guys to address it. So what's the advice to white players and white coaches around the league?
1: it's it's to address it because i think the the when i think of it in terms of you know big picture our country and our nation's history um i think the 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 real problem is that we've never really reconciled our sins from the past right we haven't really you know and and sometimes i will you know, I'll hear people say, "Well, slavery was abol- abolished 150 years ago." You know that you, it, you, you know, it's like stop it, yes. stop. You know, if you can't see the repercussions of the, slavery,
0: slavery was only replaced in different iterations right. and different ways right. throughout our history. You know, yeah. and, and and
1: the the impact, the generational impact on families, and and you know, basically, if. The, the, the only way for us to reconcile uh, the sins of, of our past is to address them. And, yeah. you know, I, I think it's been a, uh, at least a start uh, the last few years to bring down some of the monuments uh, to the Confederate yeah. leaders. Uh, I read an interesting story the other day about uh, a lot of the military bases that you and I have read the names of, Many times, Fort Bragg, for example, um, in North Carolina, I, I believe. Um, these are actually named after, after Confederate. Uh, I, yeah,
0: I saw that same piece. And, and to, to most people, I'll admit, and obviously I live in Charlottesville. I live three mm-hmm. blocks from what you saw going mm-hmm. on um, a couple years back. To most people, you walk by these things, to white people. I'll admit, I never thought twice about it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I certainly get pissed off when I see somebody with a flag draped over their pickup truck or, you know, in their front yard. I, you know, I, I, I want to flip them the bird, but I, I, um, I never thought about it. And you know, if if you're such a historian, consider if you like the history, move it into a museum. You know, we have museums for that yeah. reason, so we can learn from the past. Yeah. You know, move the monument. You know. I, but consider how the black family walking their kids to school. Like I walk my kid to preschool yeah. and walk by yeah. it every day feels yeah. it's, it's incomprehensible to somebody like you and me. So I think your hit your, your historical points right on. I, I think, you know, not just slavery, but we've had our really high points as a country. I mean, we've had some really wonderful people that I'm proud to call Americans. We've stepped up at different points. How can we have the, the intestinal fortitude to, to, to beat the Nazis and then you know, guys come home and they don't have rights. Right, uh, right. You know, like America has never been great yet. Let's yeah, get I, there.
1: I think you're hitting on a really important point because you know, some of the backlash that I get when I point any of these things out, you know, the sins of our past is, oh, you hate our country. You, know, you hate our country. Like, no, 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 I love our country. I live we, here, I love it. <laughs> I live here and this country has done some amazing things and it's been, uh, what, what an incredible place uh, for my family and me uh, to live and thrive and, and uh, you know, the, the history of our country is filled with all kinds of wonderful people and accomplishments, but we can be better. That's the whole point. You know, we can be better.
0: And you just said it. It's an incredible place for me and my family. It's an incredible place for me and my family. I want it to be an incredible place for everybody. America is yeah. great for me. I want it to be great yeah. for everybody. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, I, and I think one thing if for anybody listening um, that hasn't turned it off yet because you hate hearing anything that you deem political because you don't agree with me or Steve, <laughs> I appreciate you listening this far, but I, I, I would say that you know, for, for somebody who wants to get involved, admitting that there's racism or that you might have a leg up doesn't make you a bad person right you know that it it doesn't it doesn't mean you haven't worked hard it just means that it's harder for somebody else and you know like let's just even the playing field so yeah i hope that more people are like steve kerr and um hopefully we can we can inch by inch you know claw our way to a place that we can be comprehensively proud of the country we live in because i am proud to be an american but there's a big asterisk next to it if 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 my buddies that i play with and this is another thing you know w- whether it was cap or a black athlete who gets up and talks about this stuff like you're a millionaire you don't have to deal with any of this stuff their skin is black
1: yeah, like yeah, yeah.
0: it does nothing you yeah. had an nba player get a gun pulled on them in a parking lot recently
1: yeah. In, yeah.
0: in a gas station parking lot it does, this sk- you know that money does nothing for you
1: yeah. Well, it also infers that you only care about yourself, that you don't actually care about any any person around you or anything that's going on around you. Right. This argument that, well, you make millions, you should be happy. Uh, it's so short sighted, you know, and and, uh, and look, there's there's I mean, th- this is something that I think because of the era that we're living in, um, it's being exposed now more than ever. Uh, and. This stuff has been going on throughout our country's history, uh, yeah. but it's being so exposed now, and it's difficult to to read about. It's difficult to watch, um, but collectively, we have to uh, we have to try everything we can um, to to help end this kind of uh, you know police brutality, racism et cetera, et cetera. And you know, it's um, I, I'm 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 proud of um, you know the people out there who are, are doing the work and uh, who are really searching for answers and um, and I think that's what, what I try to do is latch onto them. You know, I don't I'm yeah. no expert on any of this stuff. But exactly. I'm trying to latch just, on. Just
0: to hop people. in the passenger seat and say, let's roll. I think, that's what, I think that's the biggest thing for anybody out there listening. Like, You don't have to be an expert. You know, I, I know that had to be intimidating to, for Carson to send that tweet. I always know he had that in him. Mm-hmm. I know that a lot of my teammates have that in him. Just because a guy's silent doesn't mean he's not a good person. But right now, silence is not enough. So yeah. I hope people step up. Let's hit some quick hitters and get out of here. Mailbag oh, wow. quick hit, hitters. Number one, give me one future NBA coach that's playing in the league right now.
1: That's a great question. It's, it's funny because the guys, some of the guys I think of are making too much money right now. And so you're yeah, right. The incentive just, to coach, I but it's even worse than football,
0: hour. Steve, like the hours are brutal. Why would anybody right. want to coach in the NFL? Why so? would
1: I want to do that? You know? Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. have to be uh, a single guy.
1: I think the first guy I thought of was Andre Iguodala. I mean, he, the guy is brilliant and uh, witty and funny and s- smart as hell. And, and, uh, would be a great coach, but but he's you know he doesn't want to deal with all that stuff.
0: He's a tough dude. I love him. He, he's one of those guys that I feel like could play in the NFL. I, I just feel like he's got that mentality. Mm-hmm. That leads me to my next question: one guy you've coached that you think could be a football player?
1: Well, I would say Draymond Green, but one I don't of those, know if he's
0: got the body type.
1: <laughs> he's got the body type. He's got the competitiveness. He's got yeah. the fight. But the problem is, is every year we show one clip. Of Draymond playing in the spring game at Michigan State. And he he jumps off sides as a tight end and then he drops a pass. And we have we show that in our film session once a year just to make fun of him. (laughs) I don't think I can say Draymond. (laughs) Okay. Uh
0: coming off the dock, you have to quarantine in a nice house. We did this on the pod the other day. By the way, I drafted you three. But we drafted (laughs) people you'd have to quarantine with for two months uh from the dock. It could be anybody, but I guess we'll limit it to players. Uh, Give me three guys. Now, these aren't your best friends. They're people that you know are going to – got to count on them to do laundry. you got to decide on a meal, that whole thing. You can't leave the house. Give me three guys you played with that you'd want to quarantine with two months.
1: That that I've played with or that that are playing now?
0: That you played with that would have been in the dock.
1: uh, Tim Duncan, Larry Nance, who was awesome. Yeah. Yeah, one of my favorite teammates. And uh maybe Danny Ferry just for comedic relief.
0: Danny Ferry. I, I drafted Chuck. Uh I drafted uh John Sally because he had a cameo. You were three. Uh and I think I stole, I don't know if you saw the Pacers lady that got really uh oh, yeah, she viral. was angry. She OG was angry. Karen, as they're calling <laughs> her. I think she could cook some like mean lunches, bag lunches for me. And she wouldn't take any shit from anybody. Uh so that's a good list. Um <laughs> Give me Steph Curry's most clutch shot.
1: Probably the the one near half court that beat Oklahoma City. Yes. in a, it was a regular season game. They got two bangs out of Mike Breen, which was a first. Yeah, you know, I'd never heard hear, heard him do the double yeah. bang. Um, but that was that was sort of the height of of that season. He was he was the MVP. Um, that season for the second year in a row and i think he got he was a unanimous and yeah
0: that's like his what more do you want me to do moment yeah
1: that was the moment where how does he how does he he's a slight
0: guy you're a great shooter how does he i mean he can he can hit like a 40 footer like it's a jumper you know from from a standpoint of release and that sort of thing how does he get the power to take a shot that looks like it's a 15 footer from all the way out there
1: he, well, incredible hand-eye coordination and uh, relentless work ethic to uh, work on his body, his strength and his balance and his core. Yeah, uh, he's he's an amazing athlete in every every sense of the word.
0: Chicago sports. You spent a couple years there. Uh, do you put ketchup on your hot dog? What do you put on your hot dog?
1: <laughs> I do put ketchup on my hot dog.
0: Good man. I, I know you get killed in Chicago for that, but whatever. I
1: know. I know.
0: Favorite road arena.
1: Madison Square Garden.
0: Awesome. Okay. I'm a Knicks fan. I'm a suffering, -suffering long-suffering Knicks fan. Yeah. It's been a rough go. It has been. Uh, It's been a rough life. And you guys started it because the only time – and by the way, I I didn't like that 99 team that you guys drug in the NBA Finals, but that was the team that finally got there, and you guys just kicked the shit out of them. So thanks for that. Um, Bulls and Warriors, give me one player who would fit in on either team from the other. The best.
1: I'll just say Scotty, because Scotty was the most versatile player I've ever seen in my life. Um, two-way player, could play every position, um, offensively, defensively, and an incredible teammate. He would have been, he would have been an amazing uh, player for any team. So,
0: Last stop here, a uh, quick game called Pop or Fill. Okay? I'm going to give you a couple activities, and you got to choose what, <laughs> who you want to join you. Babysit your kids,
1: so oh, oh, I got you. Okay. Pop or Phil, Babysit my kids. I'll go Phil.
0: That's a shocker because you don't want to come back and then be like <laughs> rigid military. I- <laughs> you come back. You come back with Phil, and they'll be doing like hot yoga in the backyard, and uh, and wearing like headbands and stuff. That's
1: that's the point. I'm I'm thinking maybe he enlightens them a little. Yeah,
0: I I would think so. A little of that Montana vibe he's got going. Go to a concert with pop. Okay, that's th- again that's an upset for me. Um,
1: There's going to be some wine involved, and you got to have a little wine before. What kind him. of wine does he like? He's I think he's mostly a a cab he he likes to start out dinner with a nice chardonnay and then yeah and then he turns to the cabs
0: a chardonnay what a hard ass that drinks a
1: chardonnay right like he just he just kind of just to you know nice and cool
0: Uh uh-huh uh-huh all right um do a home improvement project with oh god neither (laughs) because one can't and one would drive you insane
1: no neither neither can
0: oh wow okay i would i would peg pop as being handy cross-country road trip
1: uh i'll go pop
0: okay last one who would you do a podcast with
1: well pop would refuse to do a podcast yeah
0: i could see that but say you had him dead to rights and he had to
1: he had to. Yeah. God, they'd both be so interesting. Um, that, uh, I know I'm skirting the question. They are both, they are two of the most interesting people yeah. I've ever yeah. met in my life. And that's one of the reasons they were so powerful uh, as coaches. Um, so uh, they they would both be fascinating guests on a podcast or a well podcast. you
0: certainly you've been around some great ones you're a great one yourself I, I really appreciate it. and by the way last thing uh you and I didn't just share a sea ride we're one of a few players to win back-to-back championships on two different teams I think you're one of two until somebody did in 2019 I'm one of only a couple so Steve thank you so, so you much went, you went Patriots-Eagles I went Patriots-Eagles which was wild because then we play each other. So yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, and 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 you were part of a an even rarer group. You got a lot more jewelry than me, but we share that in common. Steve, love thank it. you so much for joining me, man. It was a pleasure, and uh, keep keep leading, man. You're 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 the best.
1: Chris, thanks for having me, and uh, you keep doing the same, man. I love uh, love following what you're doing, and uh, enjoy retirement. You're you're off to a great start.
0: I'm loving it, man. I don't miss <laughs> I don't miss it too much. I don't miss the soreness. We'll talk soon, brother.
1: Sounds good.